Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrs. Our guests today are Walter Olson, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and Andy Craig, Staff Writer at the Cato Institute. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Over the course of American history, we've had a lot of elections, and most of them seem to come and go without widespread hand-wringing about fraud and subversion. But that's changed recently. Are elections really under more threat than they have been? Is there more fraud than there used to be? Well, the paradox is that there is probably less fraud than there was over many periods of American history, but there is also less public trust in the legitimacy of outcomes. So they are moving in inverse directions, as it were. Uh, And first, briefly, how do we know that there's less fraud? Well, we have better ways of auditing and tracking. We have uh, various indicia that uh, uh, are well known among campaign consultant types uh, of whether or not there's likely been hanky-panky. And uh, the level is not zero, but the level is affecting fewer elections than was true over much of the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, we also have, and here you have to turn to public opinion polls for what they're worth, but uh, I think they're pretty unmistakable that uh, not just on one side, although it's been very, very uh, pr- prominent on the Republican side lately, uh, there is generally a uh, greater suspicion level uh, there is a greater willingness to believe in unproven theories, uh, not just uh, as we saw with the uh, election a year ago, but also things like, uh, did the Russians uh, literally tamper with vote counts uh, four years before that? Well, a significant uh, chunk of American uh, pe- people in, in, in polls thought that that had happened, although there never was any good evidence for it. And and it filters down to a lot of related questions uh, People do not have uh, the uh, degree of trust in election outcomes, even though it's very hard to find evidence that the election outcomes have been degraded in in any way as far as the the process of counting the vote. And uh, on that point about the history, um, if you look back, I mean, as relatively recently as the 1960 election, um, there was there was shenanigans <laughs> there. I mean, there was, there was old fashioned ballot box stuffing. Um, there was, there was violence at the polls um, and none of that sort of thing really applies today. Um, you know, if you, people who watch closely the actual process of counting the votes, it's remarkably transparent. Um, there's very, very little that you will find in terms of malfeasance there or, or fraud. Um, yeah, it doesn't mean there aren't legitimate concerns about what the rules should be and what the process should be. Um, but when we look at what happened in 2020, um, the actual counting of the popular votes is the thing that went least wrong. Um, everything that happened was after that. It was the procedural wrangling about the electoral college and what Congress did and trying to have courts overturn the results, um, so that's where you know we've recently really focused in on, and that there's some some good reform efforts afoot. And also, we don't have things like Tammany Hall and other types of machines that you know we're experts at, at those kind of rigging. Nor do we have the kind of the kind of campaign stuff that I often campaign finance stuff that I often uh, remind people when I talk about campaign finance. That you know what you gave to a senator in 1870, like Roscoe Conkling, is a good example. You know, also if they what they spent on the election, and then they just went into their you know 
new the new wing on their home. I mean, they got to keep that money in a way that was, was that just does not happen today. I think that, you know one reason we wanted to talk about it, this thing too is that we of course have, and all of us here are you know very aware and concerned about where the Republicans went both on after the election and still going today. But the interesting thing is that. The left has their own problems in thinking about what legitimacy of elections is too. So especially in the sense of voter suppression, and I'm putting that in scare quotes because it seems to me that many of my friends on the left believe that there is extremely widespread voter voter suppression to the point that we had, say, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, I think, still refusing to concede her loss in that. So I guess the question here is, what is voter suppression? Your question has helped to answer itself because uh, this is a term that is not well-defined and that is defined in terms of those who are on the um, warpath seeking federal legislation as things like um, not having enough new days of early voting, not moving fast enough toward uh, no reason absentee balloting. And the just briefly, and I have expressed a lot of frustration about uh, the suggestion that American politics has become illegitimate because of debates that are very well within normal range, the uh, turnout levels, and of course with twenty twenty, whatever else went wrong, turnout uh, didn't go wrong. It, you know, it, it rose tremendously, uh, uh, and and it rose among all races. There was very little evidence that uh, anyone uh, in a systematic way was unable to cast a vote that that wanted to. But uh, something else was going on that was uh, productive of a great deal of wrangling, which is that the pandemic had forced a. Uh, confrontation with issues that had been developing more gradually uh, toward convenience voting. And, uh, you know, let me uh, plant the flag right here. Unlike many of our conservative friends, I don't think there's anything horrifying about making it easier and more convenient to vote. You know, that with modern times, uh, we are making it easier to bank and we're making it easier to shop. And I don't think it's that shocking, so long as security is in there. And we can talk about that, but I uh, am not convinced that security has collapsed just because uh, you get more uh, convenience voting. So this had been developing anyway. A couple of states had moved to all-male voting, for example, uh, Oregon and Colorado, I think. And those Western states, which often have not had as great a burden of machine and corrupt politics to overcome, so there's a, they can be a little more trusting sometimes in, in jumping into new procedures. But uh, this was already getting some traction before the pandemic. But with the pandemic, it was clear to nearly every state that you had to at least bend the rules this once in order to make absentee and early voting easier uh, so that there would not be a crush of people standing next to each other amid a pandemic uh, spread by respiratory exhalation. So uh, that left the question of uh, to what extent Uh, should these be made permanent? Now, the indications were that, and let me talk about the bad and the good, because uh, particularly during the primary season in 2020, there were a bunch of car wrecks in which the procedures did not work well. The um, uh, There were delays and long lines and various other things. Uh, For various reasons, by the actual November election day, uh, whether it was luck or skill, uh, those uh, had um, those did not characterize e- election day. So, so the 
good side was that you got uh, a lot of people doing convenience voting that they were generally pleased with. The uh, Despite the few reports of uh, lines at polls, it, that was actually more of a problem in earlier elections. Um, but, uh, of course, when the pandemic eases, uh, you know, you have the question of, do you go back to old circumstances? And here you have a bunch of different things. It can cost more money, obviously, to set buildings aside and set uh, election uh, uh, personnel aside for many days of uh, early voting, uh, especially for small counties and that sort of thing, it can be a very real burden. And um, the uh, so you had a bunch of places saying, okay, we did it, uh, we're proud that we did it, but we don't want to have to go on doing the same thing in every future election, uh, especially for the primaries where only a few people may be turning out anyway, and you know, we supposed to open for 15 days of early voting for that too. And then on the other side, you had uh, people who are uh, see this in a different way because they see the expansion of these things as taking us farther toward full democracy and as um, overcoming voter suppression. You know, they, they have in mind terrible anecdotes of people showing up on election day and, and running into bureaucratic mazes and they think make these other things more convenient for them. And the, there will be fewer and fewer instances of this kind of frustration where someone gives up after facing an hour of bureaucracy. Uh, and they're probably right in the sense that if the goal is to minimize that, then yes, keeping all these other things maximally convenient uh, would be a way of doing that. To me, the, the, there are legitimate trade-offs in which I can accept that people of good faith um, would prefer pulling in one direction or another. And the answer, the ideal answer may not be the same in uh, the populous urban states as in the farm states and so forth. And regarding the, the democratic rhetoric on this, it's been uh, very frustrating. The you know, Joe Biden came out and called it Jim Crow 2.0. Um, and I, I think that's crazy in how much it cheapens how bad actual Jim Crow was compared to these debates. Um, you know, you had single digit black voter registration in the South um, and things like that. Uh, these arguments, the things that are in the Democrat, the Freedom to Vote Act and the uh, related John Lewis bill our normal partisan wrangling over the rules that really both sides inflate how much it matters. Um, you're talking about fractions of a point, um, which can matter in a close race, but there is not any kind of wholesale mass disenfranchisement going on. And that's a big, you know, it's a big difference between that and what uh, was attempted in the 2020 election, which is we're just going to throw out millions of people's votes and not count the results from whole states, um, that's a kind of fundamental higher order threat um, than wrangling over early voting hours or voter ID laws. I mean, on the merits, I, I tend to uh, yeah, favor making it easier to vote also. Um, I, I think same-day registration is fine. I think no excuse absentee is good. Um, but these are not things that the states got so wrong that there needs to be a new, um, very intrusive set of very detailed set of federal mandates. Um, uh, you know, when you look at what happened in 2020, the states didn't get it wrong. Um, it was it was Congress and the president and an attempt to use the federal courts 
Um, so I think, I think when you're looking at what needs to be fixed, it's really not any of these voting law procedure things. It's, it's, uh, everything that happens after that. But on this issue of the, the concerns we're hearing from people on the left, I mean, so yeah, we're not in Jim Crow anymore, but Jim Crow wasn't all that long ago. And there are certainly Southern states that still have, that still behave as if they wish Jim Crow was around. Um, we have... That you know, these debates are happening in the aftermath of the 2020 election when you had the president specifically calling out, you know, the, the problem county in Michigan just happened to be Wayne County, which is Detroit, which is where, you know, overwhelmingly the black vote in Michigan was. And so it doesn't seem unreasonable to think that the Republicans have set have have made it clear that if they can get away with excluding black voters one way or another, they'll do it as a way to win elections. I would raise some uh, doubts about some of the factual premises in that uh, series, because first, I do think that it overstates things a lot to say that Southern politics uh, currently involves one party that uh, actively seeks uh, the disenfranchisement of uh, the uh, minority race. I don't think, for example, that in Georgia, which is the state that everyone agreed to argue about as emblematic, although it was one one of many states, um, the Georgia uh, arguments were frustrating in part because even after some retrenchment in a few issues, Georgia remained more liberal than the average state, more liberal than lots of northern states. And uh, the few ideas that seem to have some possible racial balance, like uh, not having Sunday voting, uh, prized by many uh, churches in Georgia, uh, died a speedy death after, uh, you know, and, and did not muster even Republican majority support. So, and in, and in Michigan, while we are uh, getting into the bizarre details of Trump's false claims, which could detain us all afternoon if we wanted to try to list even half of them, uh, the Republican conspiracy theory that had uh, turned out to have legs about Michigan uh, was not Wayne County, where big as it was, there were also lots of people watching. It was about Antrim County, Michigan. There is no reason for you ever to have heard of Antrim County, Michigan. It's a tiny rural county where there was a malfunction in reporting the votes. And my goodness, you would really have thought that it was the train robbery of the century to hear the MAGA world go on about it. Um, but this was a Republican county that voted for Trump that uh, through mechanical hand error uh, recorded a wrong vote and took it back. It was like 15 minutes later. I mean, it was in a trivially short amount of time, they noticed that they had misentered a thing by hand. And uh, the Trump conspiracy people were off and running, uh, and they're still going a year later with claims that uh, what happened in Antrim County, Michigan was somehow nationally emblematic. You know, let's spend a few minutes on those Trump theories because they, to me, uh, you know, I follow them for the same reason that Jesse Walker follows great uh, conspiracy and, and, you know, millennial utopian schemes through American history, which is just so darn fascinating to see the workings of the eccentric mind. Um, the uh, Trump um, uh, launched as many different conspiracy theories as he could find on social media. Uh, he endorsed them all, if so long as they were favorable to him. And when the audits have finally caught up, and as you have probably heard, uh, in their various ways, uh, Arizona did an official audit, Georgia did a hand recount. In Wisconsin, it was one of the interesting cases because the 
right of center think tank. I know some of the people there and they are serious conservatives who are also thoughtful about trying to do a, a good job. They did a, uh, a book length audit of what happened in the Wisconsin election. And they found some things to object to where the big cities were stretching, uh, you know, what they were legally allowed to do as far as voter convenience. But then they looked into particular things. They said Dominion voting machines, you know, that would became the source of the single biggest conspiracy theory um, were used in if memory serves, something like 14% of Wisconsin voters, which tended to be in rural counties, Trump did great on all of the Dominion voting machines as a result. You know, this information just does not filter back through, through the, you know, the, the, the conspiracy uh, filters kind of are, are meant to exclude the reverse osmotic flow of information that would refute it too badly. But but this is the way it is. And again, that, that Dominion one, although it tied into juicy theories of manipulation by the Venezuela's dictator, um, they were basically just grabbing at everything. It wasn't particularly that they had a lot of racial theories, uh, and indeed most of the Trump conspiracy racial the- conspiracy theories did not particularly lead in a racial direction. It was just grabbing at absolutely any piece of flotsam that was floating along. And uh, on Aaron's question about um, kind of the the need to have federal oversight. I do think it's worth emphasizing that there there absolutely is a legitimate role for very important historical reasons we're all familiar with that there are um, there is a role for the federal government in making sure states can't can't do some awful things, um, but we we do have a pretty solid set of those rules now um, under the Fourteenth Amendment under federal court rulings under the parts of the Voting Rights Act that are still in place even after the Supreme Court's Shelby County ruling. Um, you know, one of the big debates is about whether or not there's a, a need for for preclearance, which is something that um, was created under the original Voting Rights Act, and then the court struck it down because they said their formula formula is too outdated for which states are covered. Um, but even that, the substantive restrictions on what states aren't allowed to do are still still largely there. Um, you can still bring a lawsuit, and people do still bring those lawsuits and win them. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there are legitimate debates to be had there. There are policy questions. And I don't doubt that Republican state legislators, just like Democratic state legislators, um, fight for every every little scrap of partisan advantage they can get in the rules. Um, but it, 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 there's still a big gap between the sorts of things we're seeing and the kind of historical uh, worst case scenarios. On that point, it's something that strikes me that in a sort of broader taking a step back where we talk about voting rules or anything that affects turnout, you know, the democratic process in general. And it seems that we're stuck at this impasse where you you see the partisan advantage opposing any rule that you think might have a partisan advantage to the other side. Um, not no principle really involved. Like it's it it sometimes I think that. You know, like voter ID is a good example. Um, widespread belief that it disproportionately affects African Americans, and therefore African Americans, if they disproportionately vote Democrat, therefore it needs to be opposed because it hurts Democrats' electoral chances. But I feel like if that, were, if the opposite were true, if voter ID helped elector were perceived to help electoral chances of Democrats, they would flip their position on it in a in a microsecond, and that we can't really get past some of these debates. 
unless we were in like a Rawlsy and original position where everyone stepped back and didn't know what party they were in and then had to agree to the rules of the game before you played it uh, and then say, okay, is voter ID a good idea in the abstract, you know, aside from whether advantages it? I mean, can we get through some of these impasses while the people playing the game are involved in the game or the outcome of the game? Let me, first, let me concede that you are right about the, the motives of a lot of the actors who are tussling over this. They are indeed uh, operating on principles of self-interest, and they are often carrying forward what they all learned when they were getting into politics about the stereotypes of high turnout helping Democrats and low turnout helping Republicans, uh, and uh, the uh, difficult voting helping Republicans and easy voting helping Democrats. And I like to point out, uh, partly because uh, it annoys them, and partly because I think it may be a way past some of these impasses, uh, that uh, a bunch of this simply uh, no longer has uh, good evidence that it's correct. And just to, to reel off the two that we've been talking about, a uh, uh, big study of voter ID uh, published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics last year found that uh, both sides were right and both sides were wrong. Uh, voter ID uh, did not uh, seem to have any uh, important result on turnout, uh, nor did it have a result by race on turnout. People um, went ahead and voted. Uh, but at the same time, it had no impact on apparent fraud. Uh, so uh, in that respect, the conservatives have nothing to care about. Uh, and it is a, a very popular policy, but uh, as far as pursuing the advantage of one party over another, it appears to be an almost completely useless thing to argue about. And turnout, which classically is the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the issue where people did perceive enormous party advantage, uh, seems to be changing rapidly as the nature of the party has changed. In our parents' day, or if you're as old as me in much of my own uh, earlier day, uh, it was probably objectively true that Republicans, as the uh, more affluent and better educated policy or the party, could take more time off of work more easily. Uh, they had cars. Uh, they could come out in the pouring rain. Uh, Republicans had the kind of personalities that would have them come out and vote, no matter how boring the candidates were. And so, low turnout elections were in fact good for Republicans. Republicans would hope for rain uh, for all of those reasons. But uh, we all know that we've just lived through a period in which the Republican Party, like conservative parties in a number of other Western democracies, has flipped. It represents uh, less affluent, less educated, more um, uh, economically struggling uh, people. And they seem to be living up to the cl classic uh, profile of marginal Democrats, which is it's harder to get them out unless there's something very exciting going on. They will stay home in a boring election. They will uh, uh, wait to see if there's anyone they care to vote for before coming out. And so uh, five years from now, uh, the emerging wisdom may be just the reverse of the old. For the moment, we're close enough to even Stephen that I would like for them to, at least to unlearn the old lessons. Uh, just that on the on the point of the popularity of it, I think part of what's happening on the messaging failure. Um, Walter mentioned that voter ID is very popular, and I'm I'm skeptical of it on the merits. Like you said, it doesn't make a ton of difference either way. But if you just poll it, it polls overwhelming majority support, including among African-American voters. 
Um, so when when the Democrats are uh, are saying that this is some catastrophic threat to democracy, particularly when we are facing other actual serious threats to to democracy, which we can get into, um, it 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 falls flat. It's not it's not motivating people uh, with that message when that's the sort of thing they're focusing on. Maybe it's the curse of actually being nonpartisan when I was asked to do a Washington Journal maybe five, six years ago and on voting, voter ID. And so I was like, okay, I like Washington Journal, even the crazy people who call in. And I spent two weeks reading everything on voter ID, and I'm like, exactly that conclusion. There's not much voter fraud, and there's not much voter disenfranchisement, and the the level of heat in this is – bizarre unless you think i think explain it from a partisan standpoint like like hans von spakovsky at heritage seems to believe that there's so much vote as much voter fraud as many people on the left think there is voter suppression and it's just it's just not true across the board like it's these very strange beliefs and let's let's talk voter fraud because i'm I'm conservative enough that first I want them to always keep in mind the possibility that if you stop paying attention to voter fraud, you might start getting a lot more of it. It's, you know, the old principle of our town hasn't had a bank robbery in, in 20 years, but you don't, you know, give up on, on, on bank security. Um, and I know that Hans uh, and others are able to point to things that have led to convictions and jail terms. What I find interesting about a lot of those is that um, so much of it seems to go on in, uh, you know, the, the um, some of the old urban machines, but for things like primary votes, uh, where um, those are the ones that often have led to the guilty pleas because the... Um, uh, uh, no one comes out. Um, the no, vote totals are so small that it's tempting to actually just steal 50 because 50 might be enough to, to determine in, in a uh, city council race in, in a primary. Um, you often will not have the other party uh, showing up to monitor the thing because, you know, the they don't care. You know, there, there isn't the incentive that a two-party race does. And so, um, yes, it's worth uh, remembering the Philadelphia cases, for example, where there were some recent uh, guilty pleas. And the uh, the few other instances, I, I would worry about things even if they're not changing election outcomes. For example, I worry about money changing hands through so-called walking around money, even if in practice the voters would be voting for the same candidates. And certainly, the, you know, not necessarily voting for a different party because of the walking around money. Um, nonetheless, it's worth... Uh, taking measures against. And I'll also say, I think the conservatives are have a wider point that should be shared by non-conservatives on so-called ballot harvesting. That is the practice by which one person, paid person or an activist, can go around and collect literally 100 or 200 uh, ballots uh, uh, at people's homes or at the workplace if it's a union organizer. Uh, or for that matter, as far as I can see, it's legal in ballot harvesting states for the boss to come around and say, I want to collect everyone's absentee ballot. Well, there are obvious issues of um, pressure and privacy. Uh, they're supposed to seal the envelopes, but uh, it's very hard to prevent some of the abuses where someone stands there and watches. And uh, among the things that have already come out are uh, instances in which the ballot was not effectively sealed 
uh, the person, as so many people do, voted only for the top of the ticket, and the helpful ballot harvester filled in the other races below the top of the ticket. Uh, again, you know, no one's getting to be president this way that wouldn't have been president otherwise, and yet it's worth worrying about. Especially, you know, one of the funny things about the whole absentee ballot uh, debate is that it took until the late. 19th century to get the secret ballot. Before then, voting methods often involved trooping into a public place, uh, dividing, uh, going to a, one box or another box, depending on which ballot you were dropping in, while the town party bosses sat there and watched to see which party you voted for. And uh, one of the big reform causes of the late 19th century was the truly secret ballot, where even your husband or wife would not see how you voted. And of course, there was a logic there, because economic dependence can often make people feel that they're not entirely at liberty. But the phrase was, it's just you alone in the voting booth. Your husband doesn't have to know. Uh, your boss doesn't have to know how you voted. Now, I like that. I, you know, It's part of my crusading liberal sense that we made actual progress on that. And I don't mind relaxing the absentee voting thing, even though it will lead to a few instances of pressure within families. I think by and large, America um, is beyond the point at which pressure goes on within families. But I don't necessarily want to open the floodgates to the, oh, and you can collect and watch 100 votes. Um, you know, you can you can watch someone in your family uh, while they fill out the thing. Uh, as soon as it uh, begins moving to strangers and, and in the workplace, again, dangers. Um, I'll just reiterate the point that's very true, um, which is that to the degree these things are having an impact and things happen that shouldn't have happened, um, it largely is local races. Um, I've seen county aldermen races. I've seen state rep races where I I felt something untoward had possibly happened, or at least that the rules weren't followed and that it might have affected the outcome. Um, I think there there's absolutely good reasons to to, to zero in on that. Um, but at the scale of a statewide race or a presidential election. Um, it's, you know, it, it fails for the same reason most conspiracy theories fail. You would have to have thousands of people in on it and they all have to keep their mouth shut. And that's just not possible. Um, it's in these tiny little local races where you have a, a county recorder or somebody like that. And they're, they're in the back room counting votes and there's not anybody watching them. Um, I, I do think that sort of thing can still happen. Um, and there are good reasons to, to keep an eye on that and to have best practices to avoid it. This conversation puts me in mind of something that our colleague Alex Narasta has remarked on in the immigration context, which is that people's kind of how well immigration polls often doesn't really track how many immigrants are coming in, but instead perceptions of like chaos at the border. If people think that the border is chaotic, they tend to be anti-immigration, but if they think that people are coming across in an orderly, controlled way, then they're much more willing to, you know, to trust the process. And it seems like a lot of what we're seeing lately with these very heated arguments about elections is is almost is a like legitimacy crisis as opposed to like an actual fraud crisis. And people have become convinced, you know, as we pointed out almost entirely wrongly, that, that our elections are all just rife with fraud and stolen all the time and so on. Um, and that probably then makes them more willing to listen to not just crackpot theories, but be persuaded by actual bad legislation designed to 
get this get our system under control. And so I wonder if something like voter ID, which, as you've pointed out, doesn't really seem to have an effect one way or another, but lots of people like it, and it might make a lot of people think, oh, well, if we have voter ID, our elections, there's less fraud, um, would be a way to you you pass it. It doesn't really do anything, but it makes everybody feel like legi- like elections are more legitimate, and then they're less likely to do things that are actually going to undermine elections. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that in that the uh, first, there is real value in uh, the visibility. Uh, uh, you know, you think of the restaurants that have uh, a glass panel so you can watch what's going on in the kitchen. Now, I don't think that the rate of uh, slipping, uh, uh, you know, the adulterants into the food is actually any different in those kitchens, but people feel somehow that they are better protected against bad cooking techniques if they can see the food being made. And uh, you mentioned voter ID. Uh, my mind immediately goes to auditing. Now, one of the ironies of the post 2020 election is that um, uh, a bunch of people, a bunch of Trump supporters simultaneously cried out demanding auditing as if this was a new concept, whereas auditing, in fact, is a well-accepted old concept that you have not just uh, the count and the recount and the other things uh, directly uh, involving vote, vote by vote, but uh, you have also for a long time and in a lot of jurisdictions had accepted methods of auditing in order to detect whether there might be patterns of something going wrong to, uh, and all in order to improve best practices by finding where things um, might have had glitches previously. So uh, when I see some of these bills from Trump supporters saying uh, we need more auditing, that's one case where I kind of nod and say, okay, uh, we've got some, but we certainly can afford to have more. It's uh, likely to um, improve our understanding of how to further uh, modernize technique, and it's likely to improve the reassurance level of many people who are allowed back into the kitchen uh, to see that there are no mice being put into the sausage. And I, I think that's something that's, you know, you hear about these 20-something, 30, you know, Republican states that have have passed all these bills that Democrats are calling voter suppression. Um, certainly they are fighting for partisan advantage, and that's what some of these are. But I think a lot of it is relatively reasonable Republicans are under pressure from their base that's screaming about election fraud. And so they feel they have to do something. And so they pass, you know, some really marginal tinkering with, with uh, the rules. But then they can point to that and say, look, we did something. Um, I, I think that's a lot of what's going on in the, these state bills. That has certainly been a big reason for support of, of auditing type things is that the Republicans who know better as far as the, um, the stop the steal charges, uh, figure that that's the thing they can do to show their, um, that they are taking seriously the complaints and that will not actually harm the system to, uh, to introduce some of it. Uh, Aaron, you mentioned that, um, a, a, something I wanted to, to just, uh, circle back to, which is um, uh, people, the same people who are suspicious of the outcomes of elections generally, when you ask them, uh, all right, your community or your county, do you think that uh, uh, the administrators are trying to steal any votes? Uh, t- typically, they will say, oh, no, well, not here. You know, I th- I've actually met some of these people. Uh, they're the last people who would steal votes. And uh, so 
the workings of the human mind, you know, simultaneously aware that your neighbors are not stealing elections, uh, you know your neighbors, uh, but that it, it is necessary for greater political purposes to believe that elections are stolen. This is what drives people toward the um, uh, mysterious technological tampering of the Russians or the Venezuelans or the Italians can send out a signal and, uh, you know, seven, uh, you know, to seven, two flips to two, seven in some machine in, in Indiana. Um, now, again, this ties in with the fact that people have been worried about this for quite a while, and technology, as so often, has come to the rescue by pointing out some of the bad designs of machines that are no longer much used. And we can kind of help that along or finish it off by moving to a complete paper trail system. We're already nearly there. You know, the, mo the great majority of votes already produce a paper trail for auditing. You know, we can uh, get the rest of the way there, and we can, uh, you know, perhaps in uh, settings in which people from uh, who were suspicious of the election uh, get to, you know, learn about the technology and buy in. We can explain why uh, those ones and zeros just cannot be sent over the ether uh, without a, a trail showing up that we would know about. And one one other point about the political incentives, you know, I think that 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 is largely fueled by the procedural ambiguities that have been argued. Um, you know, why was Trump out there screaming about fraud? Well, because he thought and argued that Congress could throw out the results if Congress determined there was fraud, which is not a good theory. And that's why, um, you know, there's work underway on fixing the electoral count act and that whole procedure. Um, but I think, I think that kind of creates the incentive for a losing party to go out and scream about fraud if there are uh, ambiguities in the process where raising that argument could possibly change the outcome. And, and on that, oh, I just wanted to ask, just while you could definitely, uh, the Electoral Count Act at some point, I mean, clarify what that is uh, and, and yeah. how that uh, actually could be made better. Go ahead, and Andy, and talk about that. And then I, I want to get back to some of the ways in which Trump did personally change things. You know, he 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 made the system different because of uh, what he was willing to to do in in um, uh, after the the uh, twenty twenty election. But but Andy on the electoral count act, go ahead. Sure. Um, well, the electoral count act is this uh, very poorly drafted, very old law that lays out the process of uh, when the presidential electors meet the electoral college in their states, they have to send their ballots. To, to Congress, and then Congress counts them. The vice president opens the envelopes, and this is all spelled out in the Constitution. Um, the Electoral Count Act is intended to fill in the details, um, and there are some legitimate reasons why Congress might have to say that's not a valid vote. If somebody voted for a, an ineligible candidate, or a state did something truly wacky, like tried to cast more votes than it has. Um, but the way this was worded, um, this is what happened on January 6th. That's why the mob targeted the Capitol on that day. Um, there was a very open-ended ability to raise objections in Congress. Um, and then the idea that you could just throw out states and, and by that get to a result where Trump won. Um, so now there's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of uh, interest in Congress on fixing that, on tightening it up, making it uh, very narrow on what would be a valid ground for objection. Um, and, and really, uh, when it comes to who, the question of who won a state, that's an operation of state law. 
um, that reaches its determination through the courts uh, before the Electoral College meets and votes. Um, all that should be settled long before it gets to Congress. Um, so that's that's one of the kind of things where if that had been tightened up, if there wasn't the perception that Congress had this power, um, then not only might not things have gotten as heated, but you know you might not have had, might not have had a mob sacking the Capitol trying to disrupt the process. Do you see that as a reform on that? As I mean, are you optimistic on just that issue? Because uh, this again, when you get to the Electoral Count Act, maybe that's the kind of law that doesn't have the perceived partisan change to it. Correct? Like unlike voter, I, I talk about perceived partisan. The- it is possible to get both parties interested because uh, they are well aware that the frivolous objections could come from members of either party, depending on who gets elected, that the um, bad uh, procedure can allow stalling by a loser, whichever party that loser uh, may may represent. So, yeah, we have found that um, Cato's work on the electoral conduct and and trying to come up with the best basis for reform has been very well received uh, uh, in all, you know, really all over Capitol Hill on a bipartisan and, and, and both houses basis. Can't get more specific than that. But uh, there is reason to think that uh, on this issue, at least, there is a lot of ground for uh, a bipartisan effort to actually get something done. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Um, you know, there's always uh, questions of, 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 is this going to get caught up in the machinery and will it get done in time? And then the complexity of getting something through Congress. Um, but I think you can see just from the public reporting, there is a lot of motivated bipartisan interest. And, and I think the chances are pretty good that there will be some kind of electoral count act reform uh, going to the president's desk in the next year or so. I'd like to say a few things about how Donald Trump made things different, because we've talked a lot about how some of these trends have been building over years and and were already trends before Trump came along. But uh, Trump, who has a record of never acknowledging that he has been beaten fairly in any election, it, it, you know, when Ted Cruz beat him in the Iowa caucuses, he said that the Iowa caucuses had been rigged and had to be done over. Uh, Trump's uh, and he also disputed the results of the election he won. Yes, that's, that's he, the other thing he, to he said that it had been stolen, even though he won. But the uh, because he didn't like conceding that he had lost in the popular vote, even while winning the electoral vote, so he would not concede that and insisted that millions of votes had been stolen. But the, Trump, in this respect, is different from other political figures that we had seen any time recently, in that he launched. Uh, an attack not just on the vote counting process uh, of January 6th under the Electoral Conduct, but he launched an attack at, on uh, each of the elements. Uh, it was the kind of stress test that involves, um, you know, d- dumping a uh, an anvil on the um, uh, computer, uh, setting it on fire, uh, aiming a fire hose at it, pouring acid on it. You know, Trump did each of these different things, and um, although horrible in one sense, at least now we know how our institutions perform under a stress test, and uh, this has its reform implications, or in some cases, its implications for reassurance. The um, we mentioned how 
Congress responded, and Congress responded with the Senate more or less holding the line, but even there, seven or eight senators were willing to get behind frivolous objections. Uh, The House of Representatives did not do so well. Uh, One reason why uh, the Electoral Count Act is a particularly important area to to look at. But at the same time, Trump was trying to uh, pursue uh, bad legal cases. Federal judiciary uh, came out with flying colors. Uh, it uh, did amazingly well, including the Trump-appointed judges, uh, in sorting through and basically not coming out with any major errors that I can think of. But at the same time, that litigation process revealed some um, disturbing weaknesses. For example, when the Attorney General of Texas filed uh, an extremely unmeritorious suit, uh, trying to get Pennsylvania's electoral uh, votes thrown out, um, he got something like, what was it, 13 or 17 Republican Attorneys General from the, among the other 50 states to back him up with um, amicus briefs. This, to me, if you're going to t- take away only three or four highly disturbing things from the aftermath of election 2020. The fact that uh, he was not left out there uh, as uh, a public laughingstock with no one supporting him, but managed to get so much support from elected Republicans is extremely disturbing. Uh, So that's an area that did not do quite so well under the stress test. But the biggest single thing that uh, Trump was was plotting was before the electoral vote reached Congress, um, uh, he was trying to get state legislatures to assume the extraordinary uh, power, a power which they do not in fact have under uh, our reading of the Constitution, to um, come in and, and let him have a do-over by throwing out the electors that had been chosen on election day under that state's uh, duly established law and replace them with electors of their own choosing. Uh, now, he did not get any state, even to the point of voting on this, he got a rather disturbingly large number of legislators in uh, certain states like Pennsylvania, although Pennsylvania legislature has lots and lots of people in it, so you can uh, get up to a couple of dozen people and still not be anywhere near uh, even the majority of the Republican caucus. Nonetheless, um, he made some fascinating inroads on this palpably wrongful theory, extraordinarily dangerous theory, um, uh, which uh, took as its starting point a truism about how state legislatures do have a great deal of leeway before election day in laying out how election process will go. Um, On that part, they would not be straying from uh, plausible constitutional theory, but then carrying it that insane step further to say that uh, even after the electors are chosen, they can come back for do-overs. And so we need to uh, at least have uh, that in mind. Uh, I'm not sure that there's a specific policy fix because Congress cannot necessarily just order them not to do insane things. They, uh, you know, I believe the courts would have struck it down had they, had they tried that. Nor is it a policy matter to say, please don't elect insane people at the state level. Um, uh, That's a political thing, and I'm not going to talk politics. People will have to decide for themselves whether to vote for insane uh, theory holders. But but it's one of the moving parts that was moving in a disturbing direction, and it's certainly one that uh, uh, the Trump forces have been working on, seeking to cultivate and extend the idea that state legislatures can do that. So outside of reforming the Electoral Count Act and potentially passing voter ID uh, and also, fingers crossed, 
not electing crazy secretaries of state and so on. What are some things like actual policy changes that we could make or could be recommending that have, especially in, as we've discussed, that the highly charged partisan nature of this environment that would have a chance of helping and actually gaining some degree of bipartisan support? There is kind of a bigger picture problem of the runaway polarization and uh, the kind of extreme two-party tribalism. Um, and that's where all this ultimately comes from. Um, and so I think there is there is an important long-term perspective there that we should be looking at electoral reform, options like ranked choice voting, um, things that, that alter the incentive structure. Um, because right now we do have a political system and a partisan ecosystem that, that, that rewards kind of running to the extremes. Um, and so that's, that's not so much a, an election administration's problem. It's not how you count the votes and, and how people vote and all that. Um, but I do think, and there are some good prospects here. A couple of states have already adopted ranked choice voting. There's kind of a, a percolating movement for a bunch of different reform ideas coming up through the states. Uh, one of the advantages of our federal system is that the states can experiment here. Um, so I do see I do see some some good long term potential there. Um, but but short of that, I don't think there's I don't think there's a lot about the election administration procedure that is necessarily going to you know you can lock it down so that that nobody can actually overturn the result. Um, but how much that's going to affect the public debate and the public perception. Um, I think is a question of kind of broader political incentives. Yeah, I would back that up. Uh, this is not a problem that is going to be solved by the federal government or by federal legislation. Uh, most of it goes on at the state level, and most of the progress uh, that we are likely to see is also likely to be at the state level. There are some things that Congress and the federal government can do on gerrymandering, which we have not mentioned, but which plays its role on uh, perceptions of legitimacy. Uh, there are some limited things that Congress could do to, uh, for example, prescribe compactness for House districts and a couple of other standards where they would be well within their constitutional and historical um, uh, role to, to do that. And it would have some good uh, and, and reduce one of the obvious uh, evils of the system. But when it comes to uh, the interest in different voting methods, whether it be uh, ranked choice voting or other things, uh, there is no prospect that the federal government's going to lead the way on that. It might get around to paying attention once 20 states uh, decide that they are happy with their own experiments in that area. Uh, and in a way, this is also part of this, the strength of our system. Our system is not easily manipulated by Washington, and we probably should be glad because someone would have tried to do it in order to solidify power uh, by issuing orders had it all been centralized at certain points in the past. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.